Good morning once again. Um, I don't think I introduced myself earlier. Steve gave my name. My name is Mark Bates. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are in a study on prayer that we're doing this whole year, and our hope and our prayer from our study on prayer is that we'll become people of prayer and that this will encourage us. And that's hard because we are a, you know, we're cynical people, and we live in a very cynical age. We were told growing up, crime doesn't pay, cheaters never prosper, honesty is the best policy. And yet, uh, every week, it seems, a new scandal emerges where it seems to show that crime has paid, honesty isn't always the best policy, and that cheaters sometimes do prosper. We, we see uh, rich people uh, paying bribes to get their children into college. We see colleges paying players illegally to come to their schools and play football. We see players using performance-enhancing drugs in order to be better athletes and be better players. We see corporations who get ahead uh, by selling people's information, violating your privacy, and they get a little fine, and now that takes them down from several billion dollars to still several billion dollars. Uh, we see uh, things happening in the political movement, and no matter which political party you're part of, if you're part of one, uh, if you're part of one, you're really convinced that the other party cheated in the last election. You're just sure of it, uh, everyone is. And so we look at this and we think these are all the people who got caught and we assume there are many others probably doing the same things who haven't been caught and you begin to wonder if everyone is cheating and if everyone is, uh, is honest. And uh, in fact, uh, as someone once said, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying, right? And that seems to be the world in which we live. We're cynical. And we're not just cynical about the world in which we live, we're cynical about God, and we're cynical about prayer. In fact, I uh, mentioned several different books on prayer, and we will mention more throughout this year, but I keep going back to A Praying Life by Paul Miller. And uh, he, um, he mentions in there that probably one of the key reasons we don't pray is because of cynicism. We pray... And if God doesn't do what we think he ought to do in answer to our prayer, we go, see, prayer doesn't work. But then if God does do what we asked him to do, we say, well, it probably would have happened anyway. And so we, we might continue to pray, but we really don't think prayer does anything, that it changes anything. And we just kind of look at the world and go, the way things are is the way things are, or it is what it is, Right? And so we come to Hannah's prayer, and we're actually going to be looking at two of Hannah's prayers. One is in chapter one, which we did not read, and we're going to look at chapter two as well. So we'll be at both of those. But in this prayer, uh, Hannah shows how we can replace cynicism with confidence without going to some sort of Pollyanna-ish, uh, idealistic uh, dreamer phase. So you don't have to be Walter Mitty. Uh, to go into a dreamer world. We can actually believe that God is at work and, and deal with the reality around us. Uh, and so we're learning how to be confident in prayer rather than cynical. Now, in the Jewish Talmud, uh, the rabbis uh, highlight this prayer by Hannah as a model prayer. In fact, it might be the model prayer in the Talmud for how we ought to pray. So for, for centuries, uh, this has been the prayer that's been used as, as a model. In fact, this prayer is always prayed in the Jewish tradition on the first day of Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year. And so here we have this prayer by this woman, Hannah, who is leading God's people in prayer and teaching God's people how to pray. 
And so we're going to look at this prayer, in fact, uh, two of her prayers, uh, hopefully as a way we can learn how to pray together. So let's learn from our sister Hannah about how we ought to pray. And we begin by uh, looking at two distinct realities that we have to keep in mind as we pray, two realities. And the first reality that we see in her prayer, particularly her first one, Second one is a response to this. Well, the first reality is the reality of sin and brokenness. The reality of sin and brokenness. By the way, in the, in the Old Testament, when it uses the word evil, the Hebrew word for evil, is not just used to describe what we call moral evil. Like if someone commits murder, we call that evil. But the, the word evil in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word, is used for any type of bad thing that happens. So, so if hail kills your flowers, that's evil. And I think many of us would agree with that statement, right? Earthquakes, evil. If uh, somebody brings you bad news, they were said to bring you an evil report. If something is ugly, you go, oh man, he is evil. That's, a, that's the, word, the way the word evil is used. It's used for all sorts of negative things. And we see evil on display in this story. Uh, and so we see this evil on display in three distinct ways. And the first form of evil that we see, or sin and brokenness, is physical brokenness, physical brokenness. And we might not necessarily think of this as evil, but this is one of Hannah's problems. We, we meet her in chapter one of 1 Samuel, the very beginning of this great story of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, and we learn right away that she is barren. She has been unable to have children. And this is an evil that has befallen her. Now, she is not unable to have children because she has sinned. She's done nothing wrong. She is not unable to have children because someone else has sinned against her. Uh, it is part of God's providence for her, but it's not because of her sin or anyone else's sin uh, directly, but it is simply because we live in a world that is a fallen and broken world. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned against God, our whole world has been disrupted. And, and it is broken, and the corruption and the pollution extends to every aspect of it. So, so now we live in a world where, where we have disease, and we have natural disasters. We have, we have hurricanes and hail. We have uh, uh, fire, and we have flooding. We, we have uh, all of these such of things that go on. And these things affect the rich and the poor, the good and the bad, and the religious and the irreligious. And, and so when a May snowstorm comes and it brings that snow down on the branches and they fall and they land on your car or your house, that is not necessarily an indication that you're under the judgment of God. It's an indication you live in Colorado is what it's an indication of. It's uh, that the weather is crazy here. We live in a fallen and broken world. And so Hannah is, is barren and, and she is grieved by this deeply because, because she is unable to have a child. And, and it's a source of, of great pain and great shame for her. And many of you understand this because you've been in this situation. She longs for a child and she cannot have one. And her, and her husband tries to comfort her and he's completely inept. I mean, totally inept. And, and frankly, he probably makes things worse. He says, Hannah, aren't I better to you than a bunch of sons? And she's going, no, you're not. Uh, and uh, he, he wants to help, but he can't. She's suffering physical brokenness. Not only is she suffering physical brokenness, she's suffering from systematic, systemic evil. 
systemic evil. We, we often think of, of sin and morality as only being individual, and it is individual, but there can be systems that allow evil to foster. So as 1 Samuel opens, is coming out of the book of Judges and also out of the book of Ruth. And in the book of Judges, what we see is this downward spiral of a nation. And the reason the nation is spiraling downward is because God has given his people the law, but there's no king to enforce the law. And so the refrain in the book of Judges is, uh, there was no king in Israel in those days, therefore every man did what was right in his own eyes. It's anarchy, it's chaos, and there's lawlessness that is going on. And so Samuel, the book of Samuel, is gonna answer this problem. Uh, and, And so what we see here is this lawlessness, this systemic evil is affecting everything about society. Uh, It's illustrated in the book of Ruth. Do you remember the story of Ruth? Ruth is a a foreigner, she's an immigrant from Moab, and she's poor, and she immigrates back to to Israel with her mother-in-law. And so she's an immigrant woman and she's poor. Now, according to the law of God, the law that God gave to Israel, the Israelites were supposed to treat immigrants with dignity because they had been foreigners in a foreign land as well. Not only that, they were supposed to care for the poor. The law of God was this, that when you're harvesting your fields, if you drop something on the ground, the poor could come up and they could pick it up because that belonged to the poor. And so so the, the poor would be allowed to be in the fields to gather the crops and that's how God would provide for them. It was, the, it was a law instituted welfare system in Israel. The trouble is they didn't follow it. No one was enforcing the law, so much so that Boaz said to Ruth, you're a foreign woman, you're poor. If you go off into these other fields, I'm afraid something's going to happen to you because the system is broken. Stay here in my field. And so there's systemic evil. Not only systemic evil of the lawlessness, but there's systemic evil that Hannah is suffering from directly. And that systemic evil is polygamy. Uh, in those days, in the ancient world, men were uh, allowed to have more than one wife. This was not God's plan. This was not God's plan. And in every case, when the Bible portrays polygamy, it portrays it negatively. It is always, every single time, destructive, and women oftentimes are the victims of this polygamy. And we see this with Hannah. Uh, she is uh, uh, unable to have children, but her husband, uh, her husband Elkanah, has two wives, Hannah and Panana, Panina. And Panina uh, is, uh, while Hannah is unable to have children, Panina is a prolific baby maker. And, uh, and so she uses this to taunt Hannah. Now, if they hadn't had the system of polygamy, the sin of Panina would not have been so visible. And so systemic evil allows personal evil to grow, and that's the third form of evil that we see here, personal sin. And so Penina begins to taunt Hannah, look at all my children. And you know when it was the worst? You know when family problems are the worst. When are family problems come up the most? Holidays, holidays. They'd be going to the temple, and they'd offer sacrifices, and that would be the time she just, Penina would take that knife and just <clears throat> twist, dig it in. And it made things so bad that, she would, that Hannah would weep and weep and weep. And she's weeping over the brokenness. And she is so distraught. And by the way, the Bible says this didn't just happen once or twice. It happened year after year. She is miserable. And so in chapter 1, 
uh, we find that she prays. And she, she doesn't hide behind some false sense of piety. Oh God, it's okay, I can take it, I trust you. No, she prays about the brokenness and the evil that she sees. And she cries out to God, she says, God, if you'll, you'll just hear my cry, give me a son, I'll dedicate him to you. And as she's praying, she is so distraught in her prayer that she's mumbling and crying through her tears and the high priest, Eli, comes by and rebukes her for being drunk. I mean, she just, she's out of control. She says, I'm not drunk, I'm praying. And uh, Eli gives her a word of prophesy, prophecy promising that she will have a son. But that's what prayer is like. Prayer is acknowledging the reality of evil and sin in our broken world. In prayer, we, we plead with God because we recognize that the world is not as it ought to be. It is not a burial of your head in the sand and saying, sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. It is, it is, it is holding your face up to God with tears and saying, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven because right now this place is a mess. We need your reign to fix this. And we cry out to God in the recognition of the evil that is around us. When chapter two, God hears her cry. By the way, not only her cry, but if you go through the book of Samuel, we see he hears the cry of Israel by giving her a son named Samuel, who will not only uh, bless her, but will rescue the nation. And it's in this uh, scene of her second prayer, the one we read earlier, uh, that we see the second reality most clearly, and that's the reality of God's sovereignty. So we have the reality of evil and brokenness, but we also have the reality of God's sovereignty. Look at verse six of chapter two. She's praying in this newfound awareness of God's sovereignty. She says, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Now Sheol is the place of the dead, uh, the grave, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, it's where you go when you die. And what she's saying is that God is the one who brings people to death, and he is the one who raises people to life. He is the Lord over life. Uh, God is the Lord over your life. Your destiny is in God's hand. As Paul says in Acts chapter 17, God reigns over all. In Acts chapter 17, verse 26, he says that God has determined the times set for all people and the exact places where they should live. And so you are not in Colorado by chance. God determined you would live in Colorado. He determined what city you would live in. He determined what house you would live in. He determined what bedroom you would live in. It has all been according to God's sovereign plan. Everything that is going on, he says, is under God's plan. He's the one in, in, in control of it all. And then he goes, she goes on and prays in verse seven, uh, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. And what she's getting at here is there's a tendency among those who are rich and have power and are successful to think, I did this. I did it on my own. I accomplished this with my own hand. Uh, Penina, her, her tormentor, was saying, look at all the babies I have. And Hannah's recognizing, you couldn't do that without God. You couldn't do that without God. Think about where you are and the success that you have had and, and how you got to be where you are. We, we think the reason we have nice houses and nice cars and take nice trips is because we've worked hard and we've earned them. 
Now there's some truth to that, right? I mean, the book of Proverbs says that in general, in general, hard work, diligence, being good stewards pays off. It makes sense. Work hard, do your best, and in general, it, 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 it pays off. And so we cannot minimize these things. Yet at the same time, we cannot forget the blessings of providence. Now, I, I've shared my own family story a number of times, but to me it illustrates it so well you know, that my, my father um, was born to poor cotton mill workers in Alabama. There, and if you've heard anything about what the cotton mill worker's life was like, it, it was horrific. There was no escape from poverty. But then, I don't know if I can say this, praise God for World War II, right? World War II comes. He goes off to World War II, and he gets the GI Bill. And because of the GI Bill, he's able to go to college. And then because of the, the time in the United States of, of incredible probably the world's greatest economic expansion ever. He was able to earn a, 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 a graduate degree, go on and have a career. He's able to buy a house, provide for his family, and, and all of those things. He was able to, to escape poverty because of those things. Now, there's no question that my father worked hard. I mean, I saw it firsthand. But, but think about the hand he was dealt by providence. How's that for mixing good and bad theology? Dealing hands, providence. But um, uh, think about that. You know, if it had not been for World War II, his life would have been completely different. Without the GI Bill, he might still have been in poverty. And if he had been black, then he would not have been able to use the GI Bill because the GI Bill would not be given to any African-American colleges and African-Americans couldn't get into white colleges. So he would have been excluded in that way. If he had been black, he would not have been able to buy his home because of the practice of redlining where they would not offer loans to people living in African-American neighborhoods and African-Americans couldn't move into white neighborhoods. So he never would have been able to build a home. Now think about how much wealth was earned in the 1950s through the 1990s or so, or even the 70s, simply because you were able to have a college degree and own a home. And yet, if he had, you know, look at Providence. Without World War II, without being white, without being the right place at the right time, those things wouldn't have happened. And, uh, and so, um, you know, so think about me. What did I do to earn any of those advantages? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. In fact, I did a pretty good job of trying to squander every advantage my family had given me. Uh, and, and yet, and yet I benefit from those things. Now, you say I work hard later on, and, and those things may be true, but we can't discount God's providence. Uh, we can't dis discount what God has done. You may have worked hard for what you have, but you must never forget that without God's providential blessing, your story would be completely different. Hear God's word. This is not my word. This is God's word. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low, and he exalts. So when we pray, we have to keep these two realities in mind. On the one hand, we live in a world that is full of evil, the evil of, of physical brokenness. There's systemic injustice. There's personal sin. And all these things we cry out to God about and say, Lord, fix this. And on the other hand, we recognize that God is sovereign and reigns over all. And so we say, Lord, you are the one who can fix this. Those two realities. And so let's look now, two realities. Now look at our two responses to these realities as we pray. And again, we see this in Hannah's prayer. And the first response is that of humility. Humility. 
Again, we've already touched on this, uh, that there's a tendency for those who have success to think that they did it all on their own, uh, but you cannot have success all on your own. Uh, Hannah knows this. She recognizes that all good gifts come from God. She was barren. Now she has a son. What did she do to change her situation? Nothing. God changed it. God's the one who opens the womb. God is the one who closes the womb. And so she looks at this and she recognizes, you know, if God is sovereign over the womb, he's sovereign over everything. And while this humbles her, it emboldens her. And so her own true humility uh, enables her to call out the arrogant uh, for their lack of humility. Look at verses three through five. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. Notice the reversal in fortune. She says, those who are high and mighty, who are arrogant and proud and, and look down their nose on everyone else, God's going to bring them down. Those who are humble before the Lord, God is going to exalt. God brings down the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's what she's saying. And, of course, we, we've seen this. Uh, you know, oftentimes we will look in awe and uh, even terror at those who are mighty and powerful, and it seems like they're almost godlike and we're powerless against them, particularly when we look at injustice in the world or, or those who are arrogant and, and they just seem to crush and rub it in your face, kind of like Penina was doing with Hannah, just taunting, taunting, taunting. And after a while, we begin to believe that they really are powerful. But if we look at God's sovereignty, it gives us a new sense of confidence and humility. Uh, you know, think... I don't know if you watched the NBA Finals the other night. Uh, I mean, it just, uh, for me, heartbreaking. Everybody injured. Uh, but um, but it, it, they brought out, you see this Bill Russell to, bring, to give them the championship trophy. Now, some of you may not know who Bill Russell is. Bill Russell was an amazingly agile big man who played basketball, just huge man who could just move. And they brought him out in a wheelchair. A guy just so dominant at one point in the court can no longer even walk on his own uh, any significant distance. Or maybe you've heard of Baby Doe. Have you ever heard of Baby Doe? If you haven't heard of Baby Doe, go to, a, go to Leadville, Colorado. Uh, Baby Doe uh, was uh, married to a man named Horace Tabor. And if you go to Leadville, Colorado, you'll see the Tabor Opera House. Horace Tabor uh, was uh, one of the richest men ever in Colorado, and he made his riches in silver mining. Went on to become a, a politician, quite successful in his career, and, uh, and so wealth, grew wealthy very fast. And one day he's uh, at a restaurant, and he notices this attractive young woman known as Baby Doe, and he's fascinated with her. He dumps his wife of 25 years and marries Baby Doe. And, uh, and the two are, are living well together, Baby Doe becomes the best-dressed woman in, in, the, in the West. That was her, one of her monikers, best-dressed woman in the West. Well, the silver industry collapsed. Tabor becomes uh, broke. He dies, and he leaves Baby Doe as destitute. Baby Doe moves into a shack by the matchless mines there in Leadville, Colorado. Dies in uh, 1930, I believe, frozen to death in her cabin. 
this woman who was described before as uh, the most beautiful, flamboyant, and alluring woman of the mining west, frozen to death in her cabin. Or who can forget Saddam Hussein? Do you remember how afraid everyone used to be of Saddam Hussein? I mean, just terrified by this man. But who can forget that image of him being dragged out of his spider hole? Uh, just a, a cowardly little man who once held a nation in terror. Don't be fooled. The arrogant may enjoy success for a time and for a season, but those who mock God may seem to get ahead for a little bit. But don't get too worked over their arrogance. Don't let it bother you. You can, you, you can relax. God is going to set everything straight. Verse 3, the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. So we respond with humility. And secondly, that relates very closely to our next response, the response of confidence. Uh, confidence. We, we sometimes think of humility and confidence as being opposites. They are not. They are not opposites. They both come from a sense that God is in control. We are humble because God is in control, but we're also confident because God is in control. See, the fear of God drives out all other fears. Awe of God decimates awe of man. Or to put it another way, confidence in God's sovereignty means we never have to fear man's power. So to live by faith means to live confident that God will take care of his children. Again, verse 9. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall man prevail. Now, that is incredibly hopeful. Here's Hannah, and she's speaking from firsthand experience. She says, I know, I was in distress, and it looked hopeless, and I was bitter with my tears, but God has heard my prayer. And she sends this to us, saying, saying to us, God's people, God is going to take care of you. Right now, it may seem dark. Right now, it may seem that everything is falling apart, but he is going to take care of you. But while that's hopeful, there's also uh, a, a sense in which uh, that is um, uh, a bit discouraging. Because he says, says uh, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones. Well, what does that mean? How do you know you will not be cut off with the wicked? Hannah says that God weighs our actions. Now, here's the image. Some people think what God's going to do is going to take your good deeds on one part of the scale and your bad deeds on the other part of the scale, and he's going to weigh them out. If you come out the good's better than the bad, you're going to turn out okay. That's not what the Bible says. God's not weighing you versus you. He's weighing you versus his holiness and his righteousness. And he puts his righteousness in this scale and saying, this is how you ought to be, and he puts you in this other scale, and when he weighs us, guess what? We're found wanting, that, that we do not achieve the righteousness of God. We do not achieve the righteousness of God, for all of our good deeds are like filthy rags, as Isaiah says. When you compare who we ought to be to who we are, we find out that we are in danger. Now imagine what it would be if God were to weigh all your deeds. Just, just imagine, you know, you know there, there are cameras everywhere in the world now. I mean, literally everywhere. You go to our church office, there's a camera out the front door, by the way, you should know that. Uh, and they're just all over the place. They're all over the place. What if you're standing before God and says, roll the tape? How would that feel? Just this week. Just this week. Here, let's look at where you were on the internet this week. Let's listen in as you talk about people who are not present this week. Let's look at how you've 
You've uh, dishonored those around you this week. How you've slandered and gossiped and, uh, uh, and been angry. Talk to your spouse the way you've talked to your children. When we're honest, when we understand the words of, that she is saying here, we remember that, that we are sinners before a holy God. And if that's true, what hope can there be for us? Well, the answer is found in verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Here's what's striking about this. At the time Hannah is praying, Israel has no king. Israel has no plans for a king. And yet she's singing about the king that God is going to give to Israel. And, and some will say she's singing about King David, who shows up later in the book of 1 Samuel. And, first, and certainly that's the first point of reverence, uh, reference here. But even David's reign points to someone greater, someone who would come a thousand years after David, who would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, and the crowds would shout out, Hosanna to the son of David. She's singing about King Jesus, who one day correct all the injustices of this world. He will crush the oppressor. And he, exalt, and he will exalt the downtrodden. But before he brings his reign in power, he first brought his reign in weakness. The Son of God humbled himself by becoming one of us. He died to the taunts of arrogant men who shouted, who do you think you are? Come down for the cross if you really are the Son of God. He submitted to their beatings and their punishments. And on the cross, Jesus, the King of Kings, took on the sins of the world of all who would trust in him. He was treated as an enemy so that we can be treated as a friend. And when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, that means we become so united to him that his death on the cross has taken the full penalty for our sin so that we are no longer set aside with the wicked, but we are counted with the righteous, not because our deeds have been put in the scale but because Jesus has joined us on this scale and his righteousness has become ours. And that's why we know we can trust him as well. When Hannah sings, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, we know this is true because he's given his very life to guard us. You know, think about how different King Jesus is from all other kings. The kings of this world send their people out to die for them. Jesus is the king who comes and dies for his people. And that's why we pray with confidence. It's not by our might or our goodness or our righteousness that we will prevail, but it's only by the grace of God, which he showered on us in Christ Jesus. So let's pray. The world is evil. God is sovereign. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you that in the midst of this broken world, that we don't have to rely on ourselves. We don't have the might to fix things. We cannot make ourselves strong. We cannot pull down the, the arrogant. We cannot lift ourselves up. We cannot defend ourselves against our enemies. We cannot heal our bodies. We cannot fix on our own the systemic evil. Lord, uh, we cannot do anything. Apart from you, we can do absolutely nothing. But we thank you, Lord, that we are not dependent on us, but that you reign in heaven above and on earth as well that you're the one who appoints 
where men should live and how long they live in every moment of their lives. And so, Lord, we can trust you. We can cry out to you knowing that you not only give us, your people, a sympathetic ear, but you have the might and the power to do that which is right. And so, Lord, we know that you will. And we look forward to that day when everything is made right, when this world is restored. And until that day, we will trust in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.